She rushed across the hall, bounded up the shallow stairs two at a time, and tore along the corridor to her bedroom. A housemaid stood back in some alarm to let her pass. Then she was inside, the door slamming behind her. She forced herself over to the dressing table. The looking-glass had three wings, so she could inspect it from all angles, her threefold ugliness. Her red face, which sun and wind whipped up to crimson, her nose, which even at thirteen was adult-sized and crooked, her huge, uneven teeth between lips which somehow did not match each other. But the hair! No crowning glory, that. A crowning insult, rather. It had a springy, unmanageable life of its own, like tropical vegetation. Moreover, her plainness was not of the passive sort that might be ignored, or regarded with decent compassion. The round eyes, which looked as if she were stretching them wide open in deliberate surprise, even though she wasn't, seemed to demand attention. People were startled by her ugliness when she was presented to them. She saw it in their faces. Then came the dreadful moment when her name had to be spoken. Presented with this tall, gawky body, topped with a face of such curious and arresting ugliness, then to be told that it was named Eglantine was too much for some visitors. Titters were discreetly converted into coughs, mouths disappeared quickly behind lace-edged handkerchiefs. She would never forgive her mother for giving her that name, never, she vowed as she stared at the three reflections. Why couldn't she have given her an ordinary name? A few years earlier she had called her son Edward, after the old queen's son. Why shouldn't she have shown a similar devotion to her sovereign by calling her daughter Vicky or Alice? It was a wicked thing to do, she said to herself, as she began to stride about the room. But no, she must be fair. Her mother couldn't have known. A lot of babies looked dreadful. She herself had seen them. But most of them grew up into pretty little toddling things. Her mother couldn't have foreseen when she affixed this flowery label to it that no such transformation would befall her latest born. She stopped striding and stood very still, appalled by the realisation that nobody was to blame. There was no relief to be had by hurling accusations against her mother. It was unfair, so she couldn't do it. Her sense of justice was almost as maiming as her ugliness. Suddenly, the thought that she would carry this body, this face and the unsuitable floral name throughout her life until she died was too much to bear, and she hurled herself across the bed and began to sob. Once having started to cry, she couldn't stop. There was Edward's departure tomorrow to be mourned, and her own return to the academy. She cried for the continual humiliations that awaited her there, for the friendlessness, for never being able to do things properly for the injustices. Her memory savaged her with scenes from the past, moments like the one when Miss Sampson had held up her needlework in front of the class and said, Of course I could see Eglantine Thorpe stitches from the top of Priory Hill. She heard again the sycophantic titters of the other girls, felt again the prickling behind her eyes. The tears she had not shed then she let fall now. At the time, she had just ached at the injustice of it. From the top of Priory Hill, you wouldn't even be able to see the petticoat, let alone the stitches. You probably wouldn't even be able to see Miss Sampson, either, holding it up with such a look of pleasure on her face. She had kept tears at bay by deliberately training her mind on what was visible and what was not from the top of Priory Hill. Even so, 
Lessons were easier to bear than recreation times. There she was at the mercy of the other girls with their endless chatter about beau and fashions which she could not join in. Even when they were all quite little, she never seemed to be one of them. For as long as she could remember, she had always been the one who was left out when sides were picked, the one who approached a group of girls at play only to find that somehow a circle of backs was all she could see, a circle closed against her. To her uttermost shame, she could even remember once humbly asking if she could join in and being contemptuously rejected. Of course, she would go on pretending that she liked walking by herself round and round the school garden, reading a book. But her nature was sociable. She wanted to be liked. She wanted to have someone to talk to about the ideas that buzzed about in her head. She was quite humble. She didn't expect affection, much less love, any more. She would have made do with tolerance. There were consolations. The sound of the bell ringing at the end of recreation was always a comfort. It took her into a room where she had her own desk, her own place, hers by right, given to her by people in power, which could not be denied her. She did not have to beg to be allowed to exist in that space, nor to sit next to her appointed neighbours. With this comforting thought, her sobs began to subside. After a while, she got up, drew back her square, thin shoulders, poured some water from the jug into the bowl, and washed her face. The huckerback towel was slipping over her skin without absorbing much moisture when she heard a knock at the door. Who is it? Only me, Edward replied. Oh, come in, she called cheerfully. Edward was not deceived. He shut the door behind him, walked over to her, removed the towel from her face, and put it on the clothes rack. Then he stooped over her and took her face between his hands. Want to talk about it? he asked. What? What you've been crying about. She shrugged. He pulled two comfortable chairs up to the window. It was a sunny afternoon. The view over the garden was peaceful. Albert and a friend were walking down the path to the tennis court, swinging rackets. Then they were hidden from sight by the shrubbery. Everything was bursting into leaf, the green leaves still fresh. Being an industrial suburb, of course, the leaves would soon be dark with smoke, and when you lost a tennis ball in the bushes, your hands got streaked with black looking for it. I wish you weren't going away tomorrow, she said suddenly. I know, it's very unfair. You should be going away to a decent school, too. Oh, I didn't mean that. It's just... It was no good. How could she describe the loneliness, the not having anybody, but anybody to talk to? Everyone in the whole world disapproved of her, except him, and tomorrow he would go. But it is unfair, he repeated, that harsh note creeping into his voice. For goodness sake, let's be honest. You're every bit as clever as I am. So what happens? I've been sent to a good school, and with luck I'll go to Oxford next year. And you? You get sent to that ridiculous academy of Miss Ferris's, or whatever she's called, and spend all your time doing things like that damned tapestry that you've got no gift for. It was the first time he had sworn in front of her. Confidence welled up in her at this sign of esteem. It's better than Miss Jones, the governess, she said bravely. And none of the other girls seem to mind the academy. It's just me. Her voice, despite all her efforts, quavered. Increasingly nowadays, it seemed that it was just her that was wrong. 
Rubbish! It's not just you. Again, anger roughened the edges of his voice. Listen, Egg. For years, I took it for granted you were a girl, so of course, Mamma and Papa were right to inflict tapestries and Joneses and academies on you. I didn't know anything else, but I do now. Things have changed. There are chaps at school whose sisters go to schools where they're taught just as well as we are. Boarding schools and high schools, and some go to university too. George's sister took her higher certificate last year and is going to the London School of Economics. I tell you, it's a different world from this. Oh, she knew, she knew. But as far as her parents were concerned, as far as all the families they knew in Throxton were concerned, they might never have existed. Miss Beale and Miss Buss, Emily Davies, Mary Fawcett, and all the others that Edward often told her about. Worse than that, if they were recognised, it was only as odd, unnatural women to be mocked by all respectable ladies. I tell you, if they'd send you away to a decent school or let you go to the new high school in Throxton, you'd shine, Egg. I know you would. She smiled at the word, remembering her reflection in the glass. The only thing that shone was her huge, tight-skinned nose. I tell you, you'd shine. He shouted at her, exasperated by her smiling disbelief. There was such love and kindness behind his anger that she looked up at him, round eyes bright with appreciation, her mouth lurching up into a great grin of affection. A joyful light seemed to shine from her. Great God Almighty! Edward thought she's beautiful. Well, she said cheerfully. Since Mamma and Papa won't let me be a blue stocking, and since Albert says nobody will want to marry me, what am I to do? One day, Edward said something.